The Bible says that as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, he sent two of them to get a donkey and her colt. This fulfilled the prophecy in Zechariah. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus mounted the donkey and rode into Jerusalem. Many laid their cloaks on the road before him and brought palm branches to wave and celebrate. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. But not all who were there understood him. Some called him only a prophet, believing him wise, but denying his divinity. Some raged and cheered for a revolution, hoping he would liberate them from their oppressors. To others, it was nothing more than an interruption. Even as children ran to him and shouted for joy, his enemies wove through the crowd, watching, seething, plotting. The range of reactions was great and wide. Celebration, worship, revolutions, deception, cynicism, condemnation, boredom, disinterest. But every single person had to confront one thing, who he was. Behold, your king is coming to you. Hey, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 as we commemorate, as we look back in order that we could look forward to what God has done. And we're going to look at Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is usually the church calendar where we um, mark the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So it's basically one week from now until Christ is resurrected that we uh, get to see an insight uh, into the life, the person, and the work of Jesus. You know, what I love about reading the Bible and studying it is that it is inexhaustible. That the more that you read God's Word, even though you've been walking with the Lord 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years, and no matter how long, uh, how many times you read over the Bible, you've gone through a text, um, that God reveals a spirit of illumination, even a spirit of revelation where He reveals something new. And you can't exhaust the Word of God and the insight that He gives. And uh, this morning, there's a an insight that uh, just from studying God's Word that I haven't really saw before, uh, something that's um, acceptable, but also like something that's familiar um, that could be brought together in the Palm Sunday account. That the Palm Sunday, it really highlights the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Like, it blew my mind. Like, I've never uh, really looked at it this from this angle. How much that the Palm Sunday account shows how Jesus is fully God. At the same time, Jesus, the King, is fully man. 
the, the um, R.C. Sproul says that the God-man, Jesus Christ, and how it's 100% God, 100% man, it's fully revealed here in uh, Luke's account of Palm Sunday. So let's turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children with you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation this is the word of the lord uh, before we get into our two main points here um, speaking about revealing fresh new things you know Something I learned this week as I was studying and praying through this passage was that, you know, the old uh, quotation that all, that all preachers, myself included, I'm guilty, is that we, we would say, hey, this very same crowd who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, would one, would five days later shout, crucify him, crucify him. And I've said it in almost... 17 years of, of preaching, but um, it's actually not true. I dug into the commentaries and I, I looked closely at the passage. And actually, it, the, in Luke 19 here, it says it was the disciples. The other gospel says it was the, the, the Galileans, the, the followers of Christ that were in Galilee, these were the ones who laid down their cloaks and, and shouted and praised Jesus that said, Hosanna. And the one who shouted, crucify him, there were the mob. There was just a crowd of people in Jerusalem, not the Galilean disciples, eh? And so um, with that in mind, that it was the disciples of Jesus who proclaimed, who shouted and praised God saying, Hosanna. I just want to get to us uh, two main points regarding the first has to do with the divinity of, of Christ. We worship Christ. And the second one is the humanity of Christ. So Jesus is God and uh, Jesus was fully man. So let's go with our first point. Worship Christ, the sovereign king. Worship Christ, the sovereign king, which talks about the deity or the divinity of Christ, which is found in verses 36 and 41. Before we get into 
the divinity of Christ, we can't help but notice the sense of worship and admiration and praise and adoration that's given to Jesus. That the guys, uh, that the, his disciples would remove their outer cloaks, their jackets, and they would lay it down on the road. That the people, they would gather uh, leaves and put it on the floor so and Jesus would come and and ride on this uh, donkey that's never been ridden before. He didn't come as a victorious king on the stallion, but he came lowly as a servant. And as he arrives in Jerusalem, this sense of praise and adoration and worship belongs to Jesus. We're to worship Christ, the sovereign king. Worship, let's admire, let's adore Christ together. And one of the things that makes Jesus so admirable and so different than all other persons, what sets Jesus unique and what sets him apart. And, and this is why the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. There's no one like you, O God, that you are separate, that you are other than. Everybody else is right here. God is other than is that how God is able to unite himself in so many qualities that in other people are contrary to each other. In other words, John says that in Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John says that he embodied truth and grace. Other people, they're all about truth and they'll run you over with the truth and hit you in the bat over the truth but they are not able to handle grace. Yet other people are so gracious and so kind that they're pushovers, that they're uh, silent when they should speak aloud. But Jesus, he combines grace and truth and he blends it in perfect harmony together. This very who else but Jesus can perfectly embody what seems to be polar opposite like grace and truth, like mercy and justice. One of the first instances in the Gospel of John is that he, this very same Jesus, would drive out the merchants out of the temple. He made himself a whip and he had zeal for the house of the Lord. He had this righteous anger but yet he could be so loving and he could be a friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Who else but Jesus who could blend uh, such two things like the holiness of God, but yet the, the eminence of who God is. Eminence meaning that, that God is near us and transcendence that God is God, that He's far from us, that, uh, that He is God and we are not. Like, who else but Jesus can we come, uh, come to and worship Him and realize that He's a perfect um, embodiment of love and mercy? And in verse 37, I'm going to uh, give you three um, insights here on why I believe 
we worship Jesus here. This shows the divinity or, or how Jesus is God. Look at verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Why did they praise God with a loud voice? For all the mighty works that they had seen. So you could fill in the blanks in there, fill in the notes that Jesus is a miracle worker. That Jesus had made a name for himself as the worker of miracles and they remembered him. In John's gospel, it, should, um, it says that, you know, Jesus, just a couple chapters before this, that he raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed leprosy with a touch. He had made the blind see. He had made the lame walk. He had made the deaf to hear. He had commanded the unclean spirits and they obeyed him. He stilled the storms. He walked on water. He turned loaves and two fish into a meal for thousands. And so as he entered Jerusalem... The, the, they knew, the religious leaders, the Pharisees knew they could not stop him. With one word, Jesus could just put Pilate into complete silence and Pilate would perish. The Romans would be scattered. He was completely sovereign. He was God. He, was, he is a miracle working God. And we worship Jesus because He is a God of miracles. Hebrews 13 verse 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who performed miracles, who ushered in the kingdom of God, which was once darkness, which was once sickness and depression and brokenness. Jesus Christ comes in, ushers in the kingdom of God and brings healing and restoration and wholeness. And, we, and this very same God who did that over 2,000 years ago is here now. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He performs, he performed miracles. He, he performs miracles and he will continue to perform miracles. And as a people of God, we hold on to this. We contend for this. We believe this. Even the day before, I, I get a, a, a text. Can you pray with me? I have a, a uncle who has a heart attack, who just had a heart attack, and we, we pray, and we and they said, the doctors, it doesn't look good. But I said, hey, we were going to believe for miracles. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a miracle-working God. Why? Because I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen God heal um, people who had stage three cancer. Uh, my old um, co-worker, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, she had uh, breast cancer and, and God was able to completely heal her. I know a church member who also had cancer and God was able to completely heal him. And uh, this morning, um, as we 
approach Palm Sunday, uh, the people, they lay down their cloaks, they put palm branches on the floor because they had seen the many works, the mighty works, and they had seen it with their own eyes. Number two, not only was he a miracle worker, but he is everlasting king. Let's look at verse 38. Write that down, everlasting king. Verse 38 says, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus was a king and he wasn't just any other king, but the one sent and anointed that's the word anointed is um, the Messiah, HaMashiach in Hebrew. That he's been set apart by God himself. And this is how Isaiah describes him. Isaiah 9 verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You catch that? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This king, his, the increase of his government or his rule and his peace will never come to an end. This king has a never-ending kingdom and it's backed by the zeal of God. The word zeal there is like the passion of God. The fervency of God is upon him. This great desire and passion to carry out the kingdom of God. Here was the king of universe who today rules over the nations and the galaxies. And for whom America is like a grain of sand and of vapor. You know, for over 2,000 years... This King Jesus has reigned. Emperors have come and gone. Kings and queens have risen and fallen. Entire nations and civilizations have prospered and collapsed. Religious leaders and founders have ascended, but are gone forever in the tomb. Yet Jesus reigns forevermore. Church, you need to hear this. Christians will never have to chant for more years, for more years, because listen, the reign of Jesus will not end. Political parties, nations, civilizations, governments, leaders, kings, queens, princes, Presidents will come and go, they're but a breath, but the kingdom of God reigns and rules forever. I mentioned this before, that the average civilization is about 450 years, but the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus, will continue forevermore. Never will the church have to fight for the continuation of Jesus' rule here on earth because the zeal, the passion of God that His name would be glorified will carry this through.
the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. So may I encourage you, church, no matter what you hear and uh, whatever the downward trend is of nominalism, of Christians walking away from the faith, what I believe is that now you have no choice. Either you're going to be a Christian, and by Christian, you're going to be a Christ-following, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, born-again Christ follower, or you're not going to be anything. That uh, nominal Christians, those who are called themselves Christians only by name, not by convictions or not by their lives. They're just going to say, oh, I don't really believe in that. And, and I believe this is what's happening. The kingdom of God will never come to an end. And it shows how Jesus himself is God. Uh, thirdly, uh, look at verse 39 of 40, that he is the Lord of creation. And so you see here, Jesus comes. Uh, goes to, uh, to Jerusalem, his disciples lay out the clothes, the cloaks, the palm branches, you know, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, because he's done mighty works. And now, look at this, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He, Jesus the King, He is the Lord over all creation. Jesus says the whole purpose or the whole function of creation is to give glory to God, is to worship and praise God and to praise me. And if you guys are going to tell the Pharisees if you're gonna, if the Pharisees are going to tell the disciples to shut up and be quiet, man, you're going to tell them to, man, if they're not going to praise me, I'll get the stones to praise me. This very same Jesus who walked on water, who commanded the storm to be still, is the sovereign Lord over all creation. He was able to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in a furnace of fire. He's the Lord of creation who shut down the lion's mouths. He split the Red Sea. He was able to make Balaam's donkey talk. He cursed a fig tree and it withered. Jesus is God. He's not just a powerful prophet. He's not simply a wise teacher. He's not just a good, moral, eth ethical person. Jesus himself is God. He is the Lord over creation. He is the miracle worker. And he is the everlasting king. Can I get an amen? Type amen in the ch chat box right now because well, I'm getting fired up of who Jesus is. That Jesus himself is God. And... Let me point this out too. You could write this down in your notes. That the killing of Jesus is not the failure of God's plan, but the fulfillment of it. We're going to read later on in verse 41. 
that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And some people, they would use this to, to deny or suppress. You see, Jesus weeps. He can't, he's not really sovereign. He's not really God because they reject him. And he weeps over Jerusalem because his design for them and his will for them, it didn't come to pass. He would have, have, he would have delighted in their salvation, but they're resistant. They're going to reject him. They're going to hand him over to be crucified. And some people think that his purpose for them has failed, but there's not something, but that's not biblical. Jesus weeps over them because he's still fully human. Jesus weeps over them because his, his compassion led to action that he was willing to give his life in order to save them. Jesus, he could make praise come from rocks. He's able to do, he can also uh, do the same from rock hard hearts here in Jerusalem. But Jesus knew he would be rejected. He knew that he would be persecuted. He knew that he would be murdered and killed and he would give his life. And he weeps over that fact. And, but this is a part of God's plan. God is still sovereign. Jesus is still sovereign. He's still in control. Look at Luke 18, 31 to 33. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written or planned about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him. The betrayal, the mockery, the shame, the spit, the flogging, the murder, and so much more. This was all planned. In other, in other words, the resistance, the rejection, the unbelief, the hostility were not a surprise to Jesus. And it was a part of his plan. And that's why at the end of verse 42, he weeps that now they are hidden from your eyes. God is sovereign even in the midst of suffering. God is sovereign especially in the midst of death. You know, I read a blog earlier this week and um, they were they were just talking about how they prayed over this person and um, and as they were praying they said um, like hey you guys you have to make up your mind right now if Jesus is God and if Jesus is good because the goodness and the deity of God is not dependent whether he answers your prayer or not. And if you look at the life of Jesus, the suffering, the rejection, the forsakenness, the abandonment, the, the flogging that he had to take, the scourging, the lashes that he took on his back, and even ultimately his death, this was all part of his plan and and he is in control and he is sovereign, especially in death.
So would you take heart that no matter uh, the suffering and the hardship that you're going through, God is, Jesus is God and that he is good and that he is faithful. His faithfulness, his goodness, his divinity is not dependent on him answering our prayers. He is God. We worship and we adore him as a sovereign God. Amen. And lastly, uh, we'll close with this, is worship Christ, the compassionate King, which let's worship Jesus because he is fully man, that he became a perfect, acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He, him who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let's look at verse 41. And when he draw near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Let me just pause here. There are two instances in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's only two instances recorded of Jesus weeping. One was John 11, 35, Jesus wept upon hearing that his good friend Lazarus had passed away. Even though Jesus knew that he was going to resurrect him from the dead, he still wept. He still experienced grief and loss. And the second instance is over here in Luke 19, where Jesus sheds tears and he weeps over Jerusalem and the people because of their rejection of him. Uh, Forty years later, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem will be overtaken. He knew that the abomination of desolation, that the, the, the temple would be torn down, that it would be desecrated, and uh, people of God would be scattered, the Jews would, or the Israelites because of their rejection of him. And in response to all that, Jesus wept. Jesus' response to blindness is that he weeps. The other instance, there's only three instances in the whole New Testament, but it's not in the Gospel, but it's in Hebrews um, 19. It says that, um, excuse me, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus, while he was living here on earth, he offered his prayers unto God with loud cries and tears. And he was heard because of his reverence that in his prayer life, Jesus wept. I appeal to you here uh, this morning. Pray that God would give you tears. There's so much pain in the world. There's so much suffering far and close to you. Pray that you would have a tender heart towards the suffering that's around us. When you and I die, when we stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, and he asks you, how did you feel about the suffering around you? What will you say? I promise you, you will not feel good about saying, well, you know what? I saw through a lot of people. 
I saw through to how a lot of people brought their suffering upon themselves upon their, because of their sins and because of their own foolishness. You know, you know what I think Jesus will say? I think he'll say, I didn't ask you what you saw through. I asked you how you felt. You see, Jesus felt enough compassion that he wept over Jerusalem. And if you haven't shed any tears for somebody's losses but your own, it probably means that you're wrapped up in your own self. So let's repent of hardness of heart. Let's repent of indifference. Let's join with humanity. Feel your humanity of the world that's suffering around us. And let's have compassion and weep with those who weep. Grieve with those who grieve. You know, uh, Goodwill Store. Everybody knows Goodwill. Um, you know, Salvation Army. We kind of know it more as a thrift store or... Uh, but actually, the Salvation Army, it was started by a Christian man at 36 years old. His name is William Booth. Um, he just uh, amazing man of God, very effective in evangelism, had a fervent prayer life. Uh, it's been said that he traveled uh, 5 million miles around the world preaching the gospel, that he's uh, preached over 10,000 sermons. And he started Salvation Army, which still continues today. A little bit of mission drift, but anyways. Um, well, uh, two of Salvation Army's co-workers, or two of Salvation Army workers, they were kind of distraught and they were discouraged because uh, they didn't have the same effectiveness and fruitfulness in ministry. And so they wrote a letter to William Booth explaining their, their, their situation and I was like, uh, how, what's your, what's the secret sauce? How is God able to use you? We tried all these different methods. We tried all your plans. We used this curriculum. We used that evangelism model. We used this um, paradigm. We, we used everything we could think of, like, and we've exhausted ourselves of the different models. Like, what, what else can we do? And this long letter, William Booth responded with a two-word telegram. His two words were, try tears. Try tears. When was the last time you, you wept over your unsaved family member? When was the last time you... you had tears, uncontrollable, ugly, cry tears over your neighbor who does not know the Lord? When was the last time you wept in prayer and pleaded God for mercy upon a friend who's stuck in drug addiction, who's suffering from mental illness, who is suffering from physical abuse or drug abuse? When was the last time that tears were shed 
for the lost and suffering world. So if we want to love like Jesus, if we want to serve like Jesus, if we want to have a heart like Jesus, try tears. Jesus moved with compassion, splagnizomai in his heart. He wept over Jerusalem, displays his humanity, shows that not only does he feel bad for us, but he grieves with us. Amen. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you, O God, that you are uh, the risen King, everlasting King. And so, Lord, I just pray that you right now, you would prepare um, people's hearts. You prepare our own hearts, Lord God, for Easter and that we would be able to celebrate uh, new life in you. Lord, I just pray right now, God, for uh, that you would stir in each one of our hearts, that we would repent from um, indifference, that we would repent, O Lord God, from selfishness, and that you would perform heart surgery, heart transplant, that you put your heart inside of ours, O Lord God. Um, Lord, I just uh, thank you, Lord, for changing us from the inside out for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.